Hello friends and welcome to the Midweeks. Um, we're in chapter 20, 1 Kings, and this is a story about God working with Ahab, and he is working with him, but uh, Ahab is going to blunder this thing. He's going to drop the ball because of his persistence in seeing things in a, a worldly way. Um, God's going to be helping Ahab through the prophets. Ahab's going to blunder it. And this is one of the themes of kings, is that as the kingship, which started faithfully under David, it, it was a mess under Saul. Sorry, it didn't start under David. It started under Saul, and it was a mixed bag with a failure for Saul. But then you have these this faithful reign of David and a semi-faithful reign under Solomon that ends badly. And as the kingship does poorly, God still maintains his rule over Israel, but this time through the prophets, through his messengers. And this, you know, you, you need to remember this all happened back in the day when there's no cell phones, there's no telephones, there's no email. And so when a king wanted to uh, correspond with other kingdoms or other nations, he would always send a messenger. Messengers were the way things got done unless you went there in person. And so God is just being a king here. He sends his messengers on his behalf from his kingdom of heaven to his vassal kingdom of Israel. And, but he, he doesn't give up on his authority or his reign just because human kings are unfaithful. But here is Ahab receiving gracious intervention from God, but blows it in the end. Verse 20, King Ben-Hadad the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. So remember, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ben-Hadad was an emperor. He was a king, but you know, when you're a king over other kings, you're really an emperor with an empire. And uh, so he is the big bad leader in this era. He's big news. And he's looking to add Samaria to his uh, to the list of people and areas that are underneath his imperial sway. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent you, saying, Deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So uh, this is, of course, intimidation. And just by asking for the silver and the gold, this is going to subject Samaria to the state of being a vassal. So a kingdom that shows respect and honor and obedience to another king. So, uh, and this would put the, the, the kingdom of Samaria underneath the control of Syria. And, you know, of course, not only is it an economic impact with the silver and the gold, but it is uh, humiliating with the taking of the wives. And also the children and wives would be like a kind of ransom. Don't rebel against me or I'll kill your family kind of thing. And originally Ahab um, just says, okay, you know, he knows he can't win. He knows he's dealing with the big bad empire that's right on his border. And so he's hoping to say yes and to save himself and the kingdom. 
And of course, then Ben-Hadad says, oh, well, that was easy, so I'm going to up the game. And so he says, not only am I going to ask for that, but I'm going to ask for everything. People are going to come and just take whatever pleases you and take in. It's very interesting that it doesn't say whatever pleases me or whatever pleases them, but whatever pleases you, they're just going to go and take everything that Ben-Hadad loves. Verse 7, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. So this is correct. He wants to start a fight. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Okay, so they're right that Ben-Hadad probably wants a military victory here. He doesn't just want a vassal. He wants to actually beat these guys and, you know, get himself some glory and tell some tales about himself. And so they draw a line. Verse 10. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Okay, so um, notice here Ben-Hadad taking that same oath formula that Jezebel took at the beginning of last chapter that went about like calling down a curse from the gods. And the same way Jezebel's curse didn't come through, Ben-Hadad's curse isn't going to come through. Verse 11, And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as one who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions, and they took their positions against the city. Now this is a pretty good line from Ahab. This is probably his best moment in the entire book, because he's got a bit of a burn here. He's like, um, don't, don't start celebrating when you haven't even fought yet, you know? Don't boast when you're putting on your armor like somebody who's already won the battle and is taking it off. Um, so this is a good burn, and this is the best thing that Ahab ever did. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, No, see, entering the prophet. Uh, Ahab is dealing with this situation in the flesh like men, and now God is intervening through his messenger. Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. And he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the district, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. So this again, maybe this is Ahab's high point. A prophet comes to Ahab, and Ahab is obedient to the prophet. Um, which is similar, like uh, Ahab was obedient to Elijah as well. And so it's very interesting. Ahab is one of the worst kings, but sometimes he'll listen. One of his big faults is that he also listens to his wife, who is just a monstrous, murderous pagan. And so the fact that, you know, if Ahab, when Jezebel got mad at Elijah, had killed Jezebel and got rid of her, he may have had like a great kingship um, just if he... But he listens to the prophets sometimes, and he listens to his wife the other times, but his heart is not fully to the Lord, and that's the thing that comes out. So he does exactly what the prophet says. He musters the governors, and then they muster 7,000 people. Now, some people have connected this 7,000 of Israel to the 7,000 that God talked about at the end of the last chapter who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal, and it's possible. It's possible that this army is mostly comprised of people who are not idol worshipers and but it, it's hard to say it may just be a coincidence that there's 7,000 followed by 7,000 and they went out at noon 
While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and thirty-two kings who helped him and the servants of the governors of the districts went out. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, If they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. Now this, of course, um, shows us the foolishness of Ben-Hadad. He thinks that this battle is so in the bag that he, he's getting drunk during the day. It's never a good idea to be drunk during the day. But especially not when you're in war and you are the military head of a people and so you can see his foolishness coming out of his speech where he says if they come up for peace take them alive if they come up for war take them alive um, he probably should have said if they come up for peace take them alive but if they come up for war kill them that's what you know a sober person would say but uh, ben haddad's drunkenness is coming through in his speech there and he's giving a confused order verse 19 so these went out of the city, and the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his men. And the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad of Syria escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So look at the success when Ahab listens. Verse 22, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Now notice Ahab listening and getting more help from the prophet. 23, and the servants of the king of Syria said to him, so we're, God writing through his prophet here knows what the foreign kings are thinking. He says, their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we, but let us fight them again in the plain and we will surely be stronger than they. Okay, so everyone needs an excuse when you fail. This is not good leadership. Notice him not saying, I was drunk when they when they attacked and I blew it. It's a, it's a theological issue. And it's this idolatrous pagan way of looking at it where some gods are stronger in this terrain and some gods are stronger in that terrain. So they're lying to themselves and this is not going to help them. No humility here. Verse 24, and do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. Maybe this is wise, because the kings were drunk before. And muster an army, like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So what you have is these two comparisons. You have Ahab listening to a prophet from God, and you have the Syrian king listening to false prophets, uh, essentially people who are giving him bad theology. Who's going to win? Verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. Okay, so it's not a fair fight. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we have this second speech of the purpose of why God is here. You shall know that I am the Lord. God is proving himself to Ahab so that Ahab will acknowledge that God is God and humble himself and become a true worshiper. This is the motivation as well as he wants to, to humiliate the false theology of the Syrians, that this false theology that totally just diminished and discredited the great victory that God had given against them. If they had said, wow, we're going to worship that God of Israel because he totally destroyed us when we should have won, that would have been true humility, and God would have blessed them for it. Verse 29, And they encamped opposite one another seven days, and on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck 
down of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Athek, and the wall fell upon twenty-seven thousand men who were left. And Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber, and his servants said to him, Behold, we have heard that the king of the house of Israel is our merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they acknowledge their defeat. And this reminds me of the story of, is it Gideon or Gibeah from uh, the book of Joshua, where they pretend to be a country far away and sue for, sue for peace because they know that they've lost to this God. So they try to use deception to um, not get killed and it's successful. And now again, they're like, oh man, we're going to die. And so they're going to humble themselves and see if they can at least save their lives after this great defeat. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he says, and he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. This is so stupid. Verse 33. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him. And said, yes, yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. And then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out, and he caused him to be put in the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go in these terms. And he made a covenant with him and let him go. This is so foolish. Like, he's got this military victory. Um, do you remember this story started because Ben-Hadad was going to take all of his wives and children as slaves and take all the money? And and it's interesting um, that as soon, I, I don't know, is this some kind of like celebrity crush thing? As soon as Ahab has an opportunity to be like pals with a really great king, like a really popular big king, he, he's willing to do it? Or is it just personal? Like as long as he personally gains having Ben-Hadad call him a good name, then he thinks he's this great guy. So this is where Ben-Hadad right after, or sorry, Ahab, right after God's supernatural victory, he's still operating in the flesh here. And so he makes this very poor deal. He could have killed Ben-Hadad and all he gets is like some stuff restored and an economic opportunity in Damascus. Um, and they make a covenant about that. So he's making a covenant with this pagan king who last year tried to steal all his family and then tried to kill him this year. 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. So he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a line shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a line met him and struck him down. And then he found another and he said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man who I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Okay, so this is where the what I mean by Ahab blunders his blessing. When um, God gives him two miraculous victories at the word of the prophet, Ahab quickly acts like a pagan king as soon as Ben-Hadad starts to show a little bit of, you know, requesting for mercy. Ahab plays the great man, 
and doesn't seek the Lord. Imagine how it would have been different if when this happened, Ahab had said, well, look, I'm surrounded by all these prophets who keep giving me the word of the Lord, and why don't I just go and talk to them? And he doesn't do that, and he goes his own way, and God is really upset. And so he sets up this scenario. This is kind of like when Nathan set a trap for David, when David had committed that adultery with Bathsheba, and David uh, Nathan tells him the story about the man who stole the sheep and took it, and David pronounces his own judgment on himself. Um, and it's good. It's God's way of kind of saying to people, you knew better. You knew better, and you should have thought about this with eyes of faith, with a, with a faith-filled mind and not done what you did. And again, this re-emphasizes how important the word of God is to God. When the prophet says to a man, gives him the word of God and says, strike me, and the man refuses, a lion eats him, which kind of reminds us of that previous story about when God tells a prophet to go to Samaria and come back without eating anything. When he breaks that, a lion kills him. Do you remember that? Um, here we have again, God exalts his word above all the words of men and God is a great king so he expects people to submit to his word like he was a great king and so when the prophet gives this prophetic word and the man disobeys um, it costs him his life which is the theme of this thing because Ahab did not obey and it's going to cost him his life and so Ahab gets stuck with this trap. This man tells this false story about losing a prisoner. This was very common in the ancient world that if you were given a prisoner to guard and you lost them, then you would be forfeit for their life. I think this happened in the New Testament when some disciples got away and they killed the guards, even though it was like an angel that helped the disciples get away. Anyhow, so Ahab uh, pronounces this judgment and God reveals that he had wanted a Ben Hadad to be killed. Remember, uh, the Lord is offended that Ben Hadad believed that he was only a god of the hills, and so he was going to destroy Ben Hadad. And so the fact that Ahab didn't destroy him, it was disobedience. And there's this little term there, devoted to destruction, which I think is cherem in um, Hebrew, which is a, a specific term of sacrificial offering, where you take something that and you give it to God and because you don't want anybody else to ever touch it because it's been made so holy and belongs to God, you have to destroy it so that no one can take it away from God. And that's what's happened with uh, Ben-Hadad. He, he was devoted to destruction. He was meant to be given to God through um, through execution because uh, he's an evil guy. Like he, Just remember, at the beginning of this chapter, he was going to turn uh, Ahab's wives into rape slaves and his children into slaves, which would include Jezebel. Uh, maybe that would have been a good thing if he'd gotten rid of Jezebel. Maybe he was trying to get rid of Jezebel. For all we know, that's why he was so excited to do that. Maybe he was just trying to get rid of Jezebel. But anyhow, um, Ahab hears this pronouncement, and instead of humbling himself and putting on sackcloth and begging for his life like Ben-Hadad had, he just goes away vexed and sullen. He goes and broods. So, so here is Ahab. What a story about the mercies of God, how he keeps sending these prophets to Ahab to save his life hoping that Ahab will turn to him in faith. And what a great reminder that we are meant to treat the word of God as more important than anything else. It is the message of the great king to us by which we live or die. And, uh, and when we turn to Jesus and believe the good news, we live. When we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and we're forgiven in his name, we live. And what a great word to make the foundation of your life.